The Bible tells us that Jesus will return one day in power and in glory. Until then, how should we wait and live? This sermon is a part of a series on the book of 1 Thessalonians called Living at the End of Time. We hope you enjoy today's message. Um, scripture reading this morning will be found in 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 11. So please turn with me in your Bibles or follow along on the screen or on the notes in the handout. So 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 to 11. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the darkness, to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he did for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just in as in fact you are doing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Perhaps the most challenging aspect of living like a believer at the end of time is that it, it involves us as believers living between two ages, straddling two different worlds, living in two radically different realms or kingdoms, but at the same time. There are three different Greek words that are used to describe the coming of the Lord. One of those words in the New Testament is the word, we use it actually in English, it's a Greek word, but it's the word epiphany. Epiphany is used to mean the first coming of his incarnation. His coming to the world in flesh, John 1.14. The first epiphany, the second epiphany, is his coming again in glory. You get those in 1 John. You also get them in the book of Titus. Here's where it comes in Titus. Verse 11. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. That's the word epiphany. To all men means all people. And then epiphany has a moral impact, a moral impetus. It says it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing, that's the word epiphany again, of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. So you see, the basic purpose of prophecy is ethical. It's redemptive. The Lord's return. The Christian is not simply someone who, who wishes to go to heaven one day and is kind of hanging around in the meantime. Not at all. The anticipation of the age to come does not solve many of the problems of living today. We know that. They don't make them go away. In fact, I think they even may make them feel more acute and more serious as we look at life through the lens of Scripture. 
So being a Christian and living between these two ages, ages demonstrates how radical and drastic a transformation in our lives is needed. It doesn't make things unclear and nebulous. The problems become sharper. So how are we to live like believers as we live between these two ages? That's what we read this morning. Let me go back to verse 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come upon them as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. I am, frankly, continue to be amazed at those who specialize in teaching prophecy from the scriptures by the way in which they predict with great certainty, with absolute conviction, the exact date of the return of Jesus. It was Jesus himself who said in Mark 13, no one knows about that day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. So be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. And that's really the point of his two illustrations. The robber comes at night. The woman finds herself going into labor. It's simple. He is reflecting on the suddenness of something coming. It's unexpected, catches us off guard. We need to be ready. You know, the problem with burglars is they don't tell you when they're coming. And sometimes babies don't either. But in contrast to living in the dark, which means not knowing, we are the sons of the light and the daughters of the day. Remember that in the scriptures, light and darkness are not external. Light and darkness are qualities to us that are internal. It is the state of our heart, whether or not we live in the light or live in the darkness. The light or darkness within us will color and shade everything else we see. If there's light within us, we'll see things through a lens of light. But if there's darkness within us, the darkness will color and darken everything and everyone that we see. You know, we often say that we see people and things depending on our inner attitude. And that's true to a large extent. But this inner attitude is really whether or not we live in the light within us or we have darkness within us. And we do not create that light. It is simply a reflection of how we live in a relationship to the truth of God. That's the message of 1 John. God is light, says John. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie. And we do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us, cleanses us from all sin. So, folks, if we have this light, we walk in the light as sons of light, daughters of the day. And Paul has two words for us in this week's passage that we really need to know. Two words about how to live like believers as we stand between these two worlds. The first word to us is be alert, be awake. I'm going to suggest to you that that means being aware of the world outside us. You know, we teach our children when they're small how to, how to cross the road and watch for cars. Don't talk to strangers. Women are told as they walk to their cars to be aware of the surroundings around them or someone who might be getting too close to them. 
we should also teach Christians how to live in our dangerous world, how to use their minds well, how to recognize evil, even if it tastes, remember, like Turkish delight. So I suggest you be alert, really reflects what's outside of us. We'll come back to that in a minute. And then Paul says, be self-controlled. This is different from all the selfish ways we want to do our own thing. Ideas and themes such as self-love or self-expression, self-confidence, self-fulfillment are not in the teaching of Scripture. What Scripture calls us to actually is self-surrender, self-sacrifice, self-denial, and self-control. The old translation of this word would be sober, not in areas of just drunkenness, but in terms of our inner life. So I suggest to you this morning that alert speaks to the world outside of us. Self-control speaks to the world within us. Now look at each one in turn. Be alert. Be awake. It's a lot more than simply being awake at church. Let me unpack it for you. Remember the incident just before the cross? Jesus went on to pray with his disciples. And as he moves on by himself, he agonizes in prayer, knowing of all that was ahead of him. Then he comes back. And how did he find them? He found them sleeping. Why are you sleeping, he asked. What does it mean to be alert in our world? Not be asleep. Let me give you a couple of suggestions. I would ask, first of all, are we alert to the shifting winds of our culture? Many of us became Christians and grew up in the church in the days of what were called modernism. So if you're 40, 50, whatever, older, we are modernists. Those days shaped our worship. They shaped our discipleship. We studied the Bible for information. Transformation often meant knowing more Bible answers. Today is a different time in a different world. Our culture has changed. It's changed dramatically. How people think has changed. What they think about has changed. How they learn has changed. We realize that when we sit down and talk sometimes to our grandchildren. We need to be aware of this and alert to what it means to be God's people in today's world. When you go back to villages and places like we came from or cathedrals in Europe, you know where they were situated? Right in the center of the town. The church was at the crossroads. If you ever visit Europe, medieval cathedrals were at the crossroads where the trade routes came. The church used to be at the center of public life and community life. No longer. What do you think lies at the center of our world today? Any ideas? I can't hear you. Shopping. Shopping. Good for you. You know where I think the center of our cities are? The mall. That's where they are. That's where the center. Let's meet at the mall. The mall's got a food fair where you can have lunch there. Our culture no longer accepts the church as it used to be. The church used to be at a player, as a player in public life. Often we are no longer players in public life. 
number of years ago, I was the lead pastor at First Baptist Church in Vancouver. Vancouver's on, um, forget the street it's on now. But one year we found in the newspaper, we read, the secretary came to me and said, do you know that on a certain Sunday in December, there was a Santa Claus parade at 11 o'clock? We were on Burrard Street. And it comes down Burrard Street starting at 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Has anybody ever told us that? And the answer was no. So we met with several of the churches who had fairly large buildings and congregations on Burrard Street. We met with some representatives of the city of Vancouver. And they said, yeah, what's your problem and what's the issue? They said, well, on December coming up, you have a Santa Claus parade. He said, yeah. He said, we're churches that are on Burrard Street. So? They said, well, how many people will come to your church? Hey, Dr. Cameron, I said about 1,200. They said, you're kidding. I said, no. Nobody in the city council in Vancouver had thought about the churches on Burrard Street when they organized the Santa Claus parade. I think sometimes church council, city councils today can be downright hostile to the presence of a church. I think we see that at times in the city of Victoria. We're no longer at the center of public life. Our church, or, or sorry, our culture is hungry for a genuine kind of spirituality. But it is looking for spirituality in all kinds of places. Are we alert to that? Do we understand that for the most part, absolutes have vanished? They're gone. Do we know today what is the difference between what must be changeless and what is changing? The rules have changed. We are no longer living in the same world in which many of us may have grown up. Our churched culture is over. Are we aware of this? Are we alert to that reality? What are the new wineskins we will need for the wine of the gospel? Perhaps the way forward lies in going backwards. It involves a rebooting of our primary mission, a radical obedience to an ancient command, a loss of self, rather than our usual preoccupation with self-preoccupation, concern about service and sacrifice rather than style. Are we aware of our mission to join God in his redemptive work in the world? People all around us are in darkness. I think in the area in which we live, up in Christmas Hill, when Harriet and I drive out at 9 o'clock in the morning, I think we're the only car with people in it who are heading for church. People are going to a lost eternity, folks. I love the one-line description of a group of people in the book of Chronicles, known as the sons of Issachar. It tells us only one thing about them. It says they understood the times in which they lived. What does it mean for Central Baptist Church to say that we understand the times in which we live? And how will we bring and speak and do the changeless gospel to that? Another question. Are we alert, really alert, to the principalities and powers? Just one thought. One idea. 
Um, churches, obviously, we learn from, from businesses what operates in our culture. We, sometimes we need better structures, more efficient organization, job descriptions for people, faster computers, all those kinds of things. How to get more people involved, better equipment. And please understand, I am not opposed to any of that. But we need to ask ourselves deeper questions. Are we alert to the seductive strategies of Satan that lie behind and in some of these things? Can we recognize where his power manipulates? Are we aware of what sometimes seems harmless, but in fact beneath its innocent surface, danger lurks? lurks. Do we know enough to resist the values that may be hidden in something, in the powers of our cultural milieu. You see, the real power and authority of a church does not lie in its structures, does not lie in a really sharp mission statement, does not lie in the latest computers. It lies in the depth of the power of the Spirit. Every time that we embrace something that our culture declares as a value, that our culture declares as significance, a better way to do something, do we understand that we at times may be embracing some power that silently lurks within that, and we will not control it. It will control us. Are we aware of that? Jesus understood that when he faced Satan in the wilderness. Satan, you know, invited him, teased him, tried to provoke him into turning stones into bread or to throw himself down and God would save him. It's not about bread and doing magic tricks. It's all about power. Jesus was aware of the power of Satan. He was also intensely alert to the truth of God. So to live personally and corporately as Christians in these last days is much more important than just doing Christian things. It is being alert to and aware of the powers that lie behind the actions. It means that the essential qualities of a church like Central Baptist are not in cultural success, but in truth. People who wear righteousness, people who wear shoes that would make them ready to share the gospel of peace. You see, in Paul's day, only soldiers would wear shoes so that they could march over every territory. They had a shield of faith and some Roman shields interlocked so the soldiers could form an unbroken line of defense. Their minds were protected in salvation. And God's people know how to handle God's word. They know how to pray. These are the powers that we need to be alert to. These are the powers that lie behind successful ministry. I have several books by an author in my shelf. Her name is Martha Dawn. And she asks some very penetrating questions, questions that I frankly find at times uncomfortable. They're often regarding pastors. She asks this. Why do seminaries train pastors to be successful church CEOs instead of training them to be shepherds? She asks, why do we search for pastors who are handsome, sophisticated, and charismatic? By the way, that's not me. 
I'm not handsome, I'm not sophisticated, not charismatic. But she goes on and says, rather than look for ones who have been broken. Now there's a question for you. She asks again in a book, why do our churches adopt practices of business life and achievement models? Another reader that I've worked with a long time, I struggle often to understand the depth of what he says. It's a man called Jacques Ellul. He's a French Huguenot, um, south of France, died a few years ago. And Jacques Ellul asks in the book, why do we resort to gimmicks or what he calls technique rather than the unadulterated teaching of the word? For many years, Harry and I have had a good friend in Vancouver. His name is uh, Dr. Jim Houston. Jim was a um, geography professor in Oxford. And about 1967, 68, he left a very safe place in Oxford and he came to Vancouver, literally to nothing. And became the first principal of Regent College, which now exists and impacts people all over the world. Jim and Rita were good friends, and I remember one time being in his office and challenging him as a young pastor about what was going on in our church and world and whatever. And he gave me a line, which I read a couple of years later in one of his books, so I must have been working on it in his head. Here was his sentence. If you want somebody to write down for this morning, this is it. His sentence was, Tom, you need to understand that technique is the Trojan horse in the city of God. Now, if you don't know what the, the Trojan horse is, you've you got to look it up in Google and find the story. Not right now, end of the service, okay? <clears throat> but if you can remember that, technique, the, the knowing how to do things, the knowing how to twist things, the knowing how to manipulate things. Technique, he said, is the Trojan horse in the city of God. What do we need to be alert to as a church as we look in the world in which we live? What does it mean to be self-controlled? So Paul goes on to talk about the armor of God. You also find that. Let me do some Bible text. Where, where's the other main passage you find that? Ephesians, what chapter? Chapter six. What verse does it start? Go for 10. Okay. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. That's, that's the armor of God. The main idea there is conflict for evil, against evil. In Thessalonians, the main idea is being on guard duty for the Lord's return. Here's the passage. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, back to that analogy again, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, hope of, as a salvation, as our helmet. I'm fascinated by words. I think you've learned that in the months I've been here. I love words. The question for you, Paul has already used this idea of sleep in chapter 4. Um, what did he, how did he use it then? What did he refer to then? Sorry? Death. Death. Okay. Christians who had fallen asleep, died, but they had fallen asleep. That's, that's the word that he uses for that. Okay. Christians who sleep, meaning those who die in the Lord. Now he says, verse 6, do not be like others who are asleep. Now that's a different word in Greek. 
You've got to know that. He's not talking about, about believers who have died in the Lord. Now he's talking about unbelievers who sleep in the sense of moral carelessness. They were asleep rather than being morally awake. It speaks again to our inner life, as we've said. And Paul gives us three ideas. He's fond of the triad of these words, faith, hope, and love. We're going to add another word to them. We will be controlled as believers by faith rather than by fear. I think a lot of people, as we've come through the, the pandemic, have been living in fear. People are afraid of the environment issues, climate change, in the last few weeks, recent bank collapses in the United States and also in Switzerland. Fear can paralyze people. Fear lies then in the economy, the environment, health, what happens to our family, fear of commitment. We don't know what lies ahead. So why commit? The answer, by the way, to that is we actually can move ahead by making promises. Do you know that we harness the unknown, we harness the unseen in our lives when we make promises because of our faith in God? That's another message. The antidote to fear is faith. We still don't know what lies ahead for the rest of this day, for next week, for the rest of this year. We still cannot see the future, but we will decide we will be controlled by faith, by faith in God who knows and who sees the future because he is a promise-making, promise-keeping God who says, follow me and I will be with you. You may not know what's going to happen. I may not know what's going to happen. In fact, I think one of God's great gifts to us is that he does not let us see the future. He does not let us see what lies ahead of us because we could not handle the inner pain of being able to change, not to change what is to come. But God says, walk with me and I will be there and I will be with you. That's faith. I've mentioned to you before um, the writing of a British philosopher called Osgen S, who's been an enormous help to me as I've, as I've worked through and struggled with some issues. Osganes talks about what I've called suspended judgment. He says, we do not always know why, but we know why we trust in God who knows why. And that's what makes the difference. Secondly, we will be controlled by love rather than by apathy. In his metaphor, love, you remember, is a breastplate. People often assume that the opposite of love is hate. But hate is also a strong emotion. So let me suggest to you that the opposite of love is not hate, it's apathy. The opposite of love is apathy. Apathy is simply, who cares? Why bother? Give it up. It doesn't matter anymore. Now we know that Jesus lived and walked in the love of the Father. He says to his disciples, as the Father has loved me, so I love you. And he goes on and says, love one another. So what do you do to control your emotions? Especially at those times when things happen quickly. Can we ask God to control us in love? And Paul says to us, we will be controlled by hope rather than discouragement. Hope is our salvation. It was Dante who wrote above the gates of hell. Abandon hope, all you who enter here. When we give up hope, we effectively give up life at that moment. When we cannot see the way ahead, internally we stop. It is as though we die. We cannot move forward. 
we become controlled by despair, victims of discouragement. Perhaps you have been there at one time or another. The only antidote to that, folks, is hope. When we see a tiny shaft of light in our darkness, and it urges us forward, it offers us hope. That's why Paul says in Romans, we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Pause with me for just a moment. And let me ask you in your own heart, is there something this past week that has discouraged you? Is there anything that's happened in the last week or so that has eclipsed the light of God in your life and tried to snuff hope out in you? Can I stay with you this morning? Can I plead with you this morning? Do not let that control you. This morning in these last few minutes, take a fresh breath of hope, the hope of God and be controlled by that, it will not disappoint you. Hope always urges us forward to get out of the rut, the, the rut that we're in. So Paul says in Romans, as he finishes his great letter, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul reminds us in verse 10 that whether we're awake or asleep, we may live together with Christ. And then for us this morning, a closing encouragement, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you're doing. Two words, encourage and build up. In the Greek grammar and in English grammar, we call them present imperatives. So here's your English lesson for the morning. What's an imperative? A command, something you just do, you gotta do it. A present imperative in grammar means you do it not just once, but you do it again and again and again and again. That's what it is in Greek and that's what it means in English. It means we don't do things just once. I encouraged somebody a few months ago. That's done with it, done my job. We do it again and again. We keep doing them. We keep encouraging one another. We keep building one another up. Folks, folks, very simply, we are not intended to get through these days struggling on our own. We will get through these days as we work together, encouraging and building each other up. That's why Hebrews 12 says to us, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Let us throw off everything that hinders us, the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with, appearance, uh, with perseverance the race that is marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. It's saying that there's an unseen crowd of angels watching us in the stands. Can I make the idea even more human? Put some flesh and blood to that. The church, this church, is to be a cheering section for each one of us. Easter Sunday, a couple of weeks from now, we're having some folks baptized, two or three, I'm not quite sure which. And every time a person is baptized, we need to be there to cheer them on, to stand and to clap and to applaud when they're baptized and commit to the fact that Jesus is Lord. Thank you. 
Let me tell you a little incident. I take a risk of this one, believe me. <laughs> a good number of years ago, when I was at Lambert Park, we, we had a gal in our 20s who came to Christ and who came to be baptized, to commit that Jesus is her Lord. Now, I have to be careful. She had been an escort in one of the escort agencies in the city. We had to be very careful with her and with her testimony and what she said, all those kinds of things. And so when she came to the questions, do you believe in Jesus as the Son of God? Do you believe that Jesus died for you and rose again? Standing in the baptistry, she said with a, said with a great voice, Hell yes! <laughs> I didn't quite know what I was going to do with that at that minute. But can I tell you, the church stood and applauded. The church cheered her on. She wasn't swearing. This was her word of affirmation. When people are baptized in a couple of Sundays, I don't think we'll get that, but anyway. <laughs> we need to be there to cheer them on. When people come to faith, the most life-changing, eternal decision they can make, can we cheer them on? When a person resists some addictive temptation like pornography or alcohol or whatever it is and allows Jesus to control their life, will we hug them and firm them? When a person gets through a tough spot in their life, we need to cheer them on with a card or a phone call or a text, whatever it is. Because we will not make this on our own. But we're here to encourage and to build one another up. Those are present imperatives. Those are commands that keep on going day by day by day. I invite you to stand, please. So how do we live between these two epiphanies? I know and I understand that most of us are reserved Canadians. We're also Baptists. And some of us, like me, are introverts. And I'm not asking that we get silly. But I am saying to us that we need each other to encourage and to build each other up. We are the cheering section for one another as we live between these two worlds, waiting for the coming of the Lord. Agreed? We want to take a moment to thank you for listening, and we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast.